listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan. And now, your host. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is Lauren Lee Chen. I'm here with Aaron and Joshua Fishman. And as you heard from the great Jonathan Santiago in our intro, together we are on the NBA beat. If this is your first time tuning in, whether you're catching us on the Almighty Baller Network through Dash Radio or listening to us in podcast form, we're a weekly show that brings on experts from around the league to discuss in detail particular teams and topics. Our featured guest for this episode is Zach Harper, an NBA columnist for FanRagSports.com, twice-a-week participant on the ESPN True Hoop podcast and co-host of the Salt City Hoops show, which covers the Jazz for the Almighty Baller Network. He's going to help us break down the remainder of the Jazz Clippers first-round series, as well as what we can expect in the near future for this up-and-coming Jazz team. If you follow him on Twitter, you may know that Zach is a self-described John Wick enthusiast, but you may not know that he was once given a cup of water by Carl Anthony Towns during a hotel gym workout. Hey, Zach, it's really great to have you on. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, sorry that I, uh, I couldn't be on when we were supposed to schedule it, but I have no control over power. <laughs> That's okay. I first want to start out with a really hard-hitting question that I think you might like. Do you have any insider info on the sandwich that gave Gordon Hayward food poisoning and kept him out of Game 4? So I don't know what sandwich it is. I do know the place that gave it to him, uh, according to his wife's Instagram comment on a jazz post. I believe a jazz post. Maybe it was a jazz sideline reporter post on Instagram. But his wife did credit it to a place called Zupa's. And mm-hmm. since then, I believe the city of Salt Lake is uh, is attacking Zupa's on social media as much as they can. Yeah, I, it must be tough for that place right now, that, at least that location. But in more seriousness, this is shaking out to be probably the most competitive first round series of this postseason In total score, the two teams are tied at 495 total points each. The Jazz have a 3-2 lead now. And it's kind of interesting because both teams have been hit with critical injuries on both sides. Rudy Gobert missed most of the first three games. The Clippers lost Blake Griffin for the remainder of the season. Gordon Hayward missed part of Game 4, as we discussed. And Austin Rivers has missed most of the games in the series as well. How do you assess the impact of those high-profile injuries versus just the necessary strategic adjustments each team has had to make from game to game to change how they play in light of those injuries and also in light of uh, how the series has progressed. I think it's interesting because both coaches are pretty equipped to handle this kind of situation. Like the Clippers had injuries in and out really, you know, all all the last four years. Like they they've had these huge stretches where a guy goes down, they have to be resilient and find ways to to make it work. And they've been very good at that in the regular season. The you know postseason's been a different story for them. Uh, but so they're kind of used to finding guys to plug and play and switch up styles on the fly, whether it's 
Blake being out or Chris Paul being out or whatever, like they can kind of handle this. And then the Jazz, the last two years, this is what they've dealt with, especially this season, dealing with it in terms of being successful. Like George Hill, I think, played 13 games with the starting unit, like with that ideal starting unit that they set out to have. I think they were 11 and 2. Derek Favors missed a bunch of time this year. Uh, Rodney Hood missed a bunch of time. Gordon Hayward missed time at the beginning of the season. So they've kind of been equipped. And I, I actually asked Quinn Snyder about that before game five, you know, whether or not their season kind of helps them for this point and, and whether he would go with, you know, what they set out the rotation to be or what, you know, has been working the best lately. And he, he kind of laughed at the question and saying like, you know, this is really the situation we've, we've had to navigate all season long. And so it's normal for them, but it's something he wishes wasn't normal uh, in the respect that like, you know, you would just like to be healthy and, and have a set rotation to be able to call on that. But it's allowed, you know, Joe Johnson to play a bigger role. It's allowed Joe Ingles to become a starter and become a, you know, a, an important role player on both ends of the floor for them. I mean, it, it really has lent them to, to be able to give different looks to the Clippers that maybe the Clippers weren't expecting in, in, in a series that is tied in terms of point differential after five games. Like maybe that is the little bit of difference that, that puts you up three, two. Yeah, and having watched a lot of the Clippers this season, Joshua and I, and also in light of the Blake Griffin injury, we felt like if the Clippers didn't win Game 5 at home, they weren't winning the series. I think that's a theory that a lot of people are bouncing around, that the Clippers are essentially done, even though sports and basketball is just so unpredictable that none of us really know. But in your mind, was Game 5 as close to a must-win as possible for the Clippers, and how much of a chance do they really have right now? I think they have a good chance. I mean, it's obviously not the same team and not the same circumstances because Blake is done for the season. Um, but, you know, they were down 3-2 against the Spurs two years ago, right? And they won They won a game on the road to force a Game 7 at home, and then they, you know, Chris Paul hits that shot over Tim Duncan to win the series. I don't think you can just say, like, hey, they've done it before. Everything will be fine. But it has been so close, and I think if they can get any kind of production from J.J. Redick moving forward, and they had great production from him in Game 5, but if you can just space the floor a little bit with him, that allows Chris Paul to operate. And the biggest struggle for them right now is figuring out how to push the tempo because Doc Rivers talked about this. like They can't, they can't do it at the beginning of games because Chris Paul is really the only guy who can attack, right? Like They've got mm-hmm. Mamute, they've got Redick, they've got Mo Spates. They've got DeAndre. None of those guys are grabbing a rebound and taking the ball up the floor. At least you don't really want them to. Uh, most fates might. Most fates might do it, but I don't. I don't yeah. know that that's a strategy you want. So that relies on Chris to to have to push the ball consistently, and that will wear him out if he has to do that at the beginning of games. Once you can get the reserve starting to like, you know, stagger in and trickle into the rotation, um, then you can do it because you have more ball handlers. You know, Austin can push the ball. Jamal can push the ball. Felton can push the ball a little bit. You can make it work, but at that point, you've allowed the, the Jazz to kind of dictate so much of the tempo um, to be a slow, grinded-out game, and that's what they want. They want to play at that slow pace. They want to force you to defend you know, for 24 seconds. They want to force you to you know, attack late in the shot clock against them and have to panic into shots and everything. So that's the tough thing for the Clippers, and maybe why Game 5 was a little bit of a must-win just because – you know, you you can't be back against the wall while also not being able to play the brand of basketball you want to play in a series. Um, with that said, like I, the Jazz are looking at Game Six as a must win because they don't want to go back to LA, and I kind of think that's a mistake. Like I don't, I think that puts too much pressure 
or it puts an unnecessary amount of pressure on the home team, um, especially one with such a young core, even though they do have veterans sprinkled in to to think like, all right, if you do lo- lose game six, it, does that deflate you too much going back to L.A. for a, a weird timing of a game seven like that? I don't know what yeah. that does to you mentally. To me, game five was much more of a must win for the Clippers than game six is for Utah. And I think a lot of that has to do with how important I feel Blake Griffin is to this team. I think the really important main difference between that Spurs series that you alluded to and this series, this postseason with the Jazz, is that not only was Blake Griffin healthy, but he was playing the best basketball of his career a couple of postseasons ago. And now without Blake Griffin, um, you mentioned this in your previous response that the Clippers are missing a guy that's able to pull down a rebound and push the ball up the court, which allows Chris Paul to not um, expend so much energy and have such a high usage rate. And also the depth is looking a little thin right now with Austin Rivers not looking like himself. We'll get more to that later. And Jamal Crawford being inconsistent, Redick being kind of stifled so far. Chris Paul has had to expend a ton of energy during the year, averaging fewer than 13 field goal attempts per game. This series, over 19. He's playing upwards of 36 minutes per game. Even if he keeps going off like he's been at times, and the second half of Game 3 was an excellent example, do you worry that that's not enough for the Clippers, potentially? Yeah, I mean, we got to... (laughs) There was a point in Game 5 where I was like, oh... They're going to waste a game in which Paul Pierce hit two threes. That can't be good. Like, that's nothing you should think about for this Clippers team in a playoff series, right? Of like, oh, Paul Pierce scored six points and they're not going to win. That's a bad outing for them. Like, you, like they just need more help. And especially, you know, because of the Blake injury, they've got to play Mo Spates a lot. Um, they play him with Jamal Crawford, you know, quite a bit. And the Jazz they're just hunting out one of those guys every single time down the floor and it's working like they're just they're feasting i mean even in game 5 they got off to a slow start well i guess gordon hit a couple of open threes but after that they got off to a slow start but it wasn't because they were playing bad basketball they were just missing shots like they were getting everything they wanted within the offensive flow and you expect those shots to eventually fall and when they do like how much pressure does that put on chris paul to deliver in the, yeah. in the very next possession and at the usage rate he's going to have to have. And, you know, with the minutes piled up and with the years piled up and all this stuff, like it does seem that the Clippers just have this insane uphill battle. I mean, I guess that's just the Clippers every postseason in yeah. some way. But like that's, you know, I just that seems like a lot to ask of him. I agree. They never make it easy on themselves. And then some of these injuries are arguably outside of their control. You hate to see the same thing year in and year out. I want to get to Gordon Hayward. Arguably, at least I think he's the Jazz's MVP. You can correct me if I'm wrong, even though Rudy Gobert and others are extremely valuable. He does a lot of things that seem to go unnoticed besides the massive amounts of points that he can put up. And one example I'm thinking of is the Jazz are up to late in the fourth quarter of game five and he tips out a offensive rebound to joe johnson who nails the three and they extend their lead to five with under three minutes to go just so backbreaking for the clippers how important is he to utah just doing these things that don't always show up in the stat sheet yeah i mean i'm with you like i think he's been their mvp this year some a lot of people will say or a lot of people locally will say it's been rudy gobert 
um, because of the defensive impact. Like Gordon's a really good defender, plays really well defensively within that system, and he's so vital to them offensively that to me that's just enough to edge out what Gobert's been able to to do, who who's all you know, who might be the defensive player of the year and was the second best pick and roll big man this year in the NBA. Um, but Gordon, like, it's crazy. Like his patience attacking, like you see so many star wings, you know, go into this hero mode and this ISO mode and maybe rush shots and rush possessions because you have to make sure you get a shot off. Right. But Gordon just always plays within the flow of the offense and doesn't really force anything. Doesn't take bad shots. That tip out play that you mentioned was, was incredible. And you know, he had a good reason for it. He was like, Hey, it's, you know, three, four minutes left in the game. He knew that there was unlikely to be a transition opportunity no matter what, because teams just don't push late in games like that. And so he felt he had the, you know, kind of the bandwidth to, to crash the glass, attempt to tap out to, you know, to a teammate. And if it didn't work, then he could get back on defense because the, the Clippers weren't going to push. Like it's just those kind of little decisions that guys make and that stars make that, you know, maybe go more unnoticed than they should. But he just embodies everything they want to be offensively, like just his patience, his playmaking, his outside shooting. Uh, you know, he I think he had close to 60 percent true shooting this year. Like he just wow. he's just such an he's just such an efficient player offensively and because he doesn't really go outside of of what he's asked to do it just sets everyone up for the ball movement and the player movement that the jazz you know hope to have on every possession the thing you said about gordon hayward how he stays inside of the game plan and doesn't try to do too much i think that that applies to chris paul and that that's not a good thing for the clippers because when he's asked to do so much and basically carry the team on the back Not that he's incapable of that. We saw him do that in the second half of Game 3. I just think he's not most comfortable doing so. I think he likes to um, kind of like more evenly distribute and score and not just focus on just dominating the game. So I see a challenge there, as I mentioned before, for the Clippers. But more about Gordon Hayward. As he enters into free agency this summer, to what extent do you think there's more urgency for the Jazz to succeed? I know... They've been hungry for a playoff berth and a playoff win for a while now, regardless. Yeah, I, it's huge. I mean, especially now, like up 3-2, no Blake Griffin. To blow this series, you know, I don't think that's the deciding factor if Gordon decides to leave. Like, I don't think he looks at these final two games if they lose them and is like, well, you know, I got to get out of here. I got to go to the East or whatever. Um, I don't think it's that dramatic. But having a playoff series win with this group, you know, you won, what, 52, 53 games, something like that. Uh, 51. Yeah, yeah 50, 51 games this year uh, with all of those injuries piled up. This seems extreme, but they have the makings of being a 60-win regular season team just because they're so hard to play on random nights in the regular season. So you can approach 60 wins. You can be, you know, a top two, three seed in the West. You can have the home court advantage. You can put yourself in a position to go deep in the playoffs. You know, all that factors in, and it, and it shows – you know, you win this playoff series, you go into the next round, maybe you steal a game or two against the, the Warriors, although that looks to be a little optimistic. But if you can do that, it's just more to add to the money and to the, you know, the loyalty and all the stuff they're going to pitch him this summer to resign. It's all going to factor in. And and not that this team will fall apart and be bad if he leaves, but they're, you know, it's just such a wrench into what they can be if he's not around that they'll pivot and they'll be successful down the road. But you you just can't keep building without him and they they know it he knows it and that it just 
you know, adds so much depth to the decision he has to make this summer. Another player who's been so crucial to what the Jazz does is veteran Joe Johnson. He's been playing big minutes and has been so effective as the small ball four. How has he been able to be so good? And what have the Clippers done to adjust? So at the end of game four or second half of game four, they threw Bamute on him because Gordon was gone. They didn't have to guard Gordon anymore. He was out for the rest of the game with food poisoning. So they threw Bamute on him, but it didn't really matter because Joe's, you know, as strong or stronger than him. He's patient. He has a great handle. He doesn't, you know, rush anything. So he was able to get to the spots on the floor he wanted. Doc talked about not throwing, you know, enough attention his way and that they needed to adjust it. But, you know, as much as the ISO Joe moniker has followed him over the years, the Jazz are very quick to say, like, this guy's a playmaker, like not just for himself, but for everyone. And he showed that at the end of game four. He found Rodney Hood for a three. He found Joe Ingles for a couple of threes. You know, he found plays for everybody else as he drew the attention. It wasn't as severe in game five, but they also, you know, they had Gordon back. They had Joe Ingles playing well. They had George Hill and Rodney Hood stepping up like they had. You know, quite a few guys to to kind of round out the the attack. They had Rudy Gobert looking much more comfortable on the floor offensively. So Joe just kind of fits in. And, and what's funny is they didn't play him at small ball four all that much in the regular season. But when they did, it killed. I mean, they were like plus twenty five, plus twenty nine. I mean, they were their lineups with him as a small ball four were so good, and they knew they were going to unleash that more in the playoffs. So. You know, he's talked about it that other guys on the Clippers have talked about it. like his Joe Johnson's game has never really been predicated on athleticism. So he's been able to be the same player for 15 years. So it's not like he's having to adjust to anything. He's just showing up in the moments where they need him because he, you know he's able to. How unstoppable was that shot, the game winner in game one with Jamal Crawford on him? My favorite shot there, like I think the Jazz account tweeted this out. I think it was a local broadcast shot, but there's a shot of it where it's zoomed in on him as he gets the ball on the left wing and he side, you know, he's, he's squared up against Jamal Crawford and you see the jazz bench. Like you see like Trey Lyles, um, you see Alec Burks, like you see these guys on the jazz bench and it's not like they're, there's no like, Oh my God, I hope he hits this. This is such a moment. This is like, this is like an and one mixtape tour. Are they drooling? They're, they're, they're like, they're like, go get, him. go get him. They're yelling, expose him. Like, it's oh, everything. Yeah. Like, I'm sure someone's yelling world star in the background. Like, they know something <laughs> bad's going to happen. Like, it's, it's such a cool moment because they do, like, they've gone against him in practice a lot this year. And they have seen this, how this story ends every single time when he gets singled out against a, a guy who can't really guard him. Like, they knew it wasn't a matter of, like, he may win the game. Like, they knew he was going to win the game. And that excitement, you know, DeAndre Jordan comes over and helps and, all, you know, it's a good challenge on the shot, but everyone on that Jazz bench knew it was over at that point. On the other side of the ball, the Jazz ranked number three in defensive efficiency this season, and they're doing a great job on J.J. Redick and Jamal Crawford, except for Redick's Game 5 performance and Crawford in Game 4. Those guys have really been shut down. How have the Jazz been able to do that? Well, it's, it's impressive because not really having Rudy Gobert at 100% just changes their defense so much because I think the Jazz allowed the second lowest three-point rate in the in the league this year. I think I think Miami was first and the Jazz were were second like because they don't try to force turnovers. They make sure like this sounds obvious, but they make sure not to foul. Like they really believe in playing defense without fouling. Like it's not this rough and tumble style of defense. 
Um, so their whole mindset is, we have Rudy Gobert in the middle. We're going to run you off the three-point line. Good luck dealing with him. And, you know, I've had assistant coaches tell me this in the past of like, we're going to dare referees to call defensive three seconds on Rudy Gobert. Like, we're just going to put him in the paint. They rarely call it. So we feel comfortable kind of exploiting that lack of a call. And they just allow him to protect the rim. And really nobody does it better than he does in terms of altering shots and getting guys to miss around the rim. But without him, they've still managed to kind of keep those principles. And Derek Favors... He's played good defense for him, but he's really playing on one leg. Like he's not doing a whole lot in terms of stifling JJ Redick. Uh, I think Doc Rivers would would champion this comment of they're doing a lot of holding and a lot of grabbing and just physically not letting him go anywhere. And it probably should be called a lot more than it has, but it hasn't been. Uh, on the flip side of that, the Clippers have been very physical with Gordon Hayward off the ball. Um, so I think you know it, I think it is going both ways at least. But you know if you if you just don't allow JJ to go where he's going to go. There's not a lot he can do about it. And the Clippers aren't really running anything for him. They ran stuff for him in game five, but the four prior games, like he's kind of just been like a screener and go stand in the corner and space the floor. So it's making the job easier for the Jazz to contain him, but their wing defenders are really good. You mentioned just now Derek Favors playing on essentially one foot, but he's putting up pretty good numbers. I think he's been consistent for the most part, obviously. Both teams went smaller in game five, so he didn't get that many minutes. But what is he contributing, even though clearly he, you can see how bad he's limping when he runs back? He's definitely been able to make some impact, especially when Gobert was out. Yeah, when Gobert, I mean, I think game three, he was pretty bad. Like, I think he got out-rebounded by Chris Paul in the game. He, had to, he only had two or three points. Um, you know, he that was definitely the low point for him in that game. But he responded in game four in Gobert's return by being a guy who was hitting these little floaters in pick and rolls in the middle of the lane. Uh, he was kind of orbiting the the restricted area really well for dump off passes and getting dunks. Um, he rebounded much better. He boxed out much better. He protected the rim much better. I, I think he's been able to uh, embrace a reduced role as a non-starter now. And as a guy who is backing up Rudy Gobert, um, he's, he's been able to kind of embrace that playing fewer minutes allows him to, to kind of maximize his effort a little bit more, maybe be maybe not have to, you know, kind of check when he jumps high and when he doesn't jump high. And he's a tough matchup. I mean, he if he's going against most Spates, you have to feel really good about that as a backup big man option for the Jazz because Favors can just kind of bully him. He can stick with guys. He contains well in the pick and roll. Like he's just a, he's a good player asking being asked to do less. Yeah, I know we're kind of jumping all around, but you did write a good thing about Austin Rivers in your series preview. You identified him as the Clippers' X factor, even knowing that he'd miss some games nursing that strained hamstring. And I think you're right that he's very important for this Clippers team, especially now without Griffin and the scoring and passing that he brings. So I know he basically had no offensive impact in game five and whether it's just a physical thing or also just mentally rivers is not ready to compete at this level after being out for so long what do you think the clippers need from him to have a good chance at, at bringing this series to a seventh game yeah i mean he was really good against the jazz in the regular season he shot i think 63 percent true shooting against them they were plus 18 with him on the floor like a minus three with him not on the floor against the jazz and the reason he was so good against the jazz is he attacks downhill like he just really put a lot of pressure even against gobert like he just he hit runner after runner against gobert he got to the rim he was kind of fearless but crafty at the same time and putting that pressure on 
the Jazz defense is not something they have to deal with a lot because guys are usually pretty weary of Gobert inside. They, you know, they rotate well as a team and Rivers has kind of thrown a wrench into that. So I don't know what to expect of him in game six. And if there's a game seven, because uh, at the end of game five, I was in the tunnel as the Clippers were walking off the floor and Rivers, you know, had a pretty significant limp. Like I think that hamstring is going to be an issue moving forward. I think he'll play, but I just don't know how much explosiveness he has but they need him to get into the paint. Like he's got to get into the paint and just make plays. He's probably not going to make a ton of plays for others, but whether it's drawing fouls or getting layups or getting that runner to fall, um, you know, they just need like, you know, five, six good drives out of him that produce, you know, 10 to 12 points in some way. And if they can get that in a series that's so highly contested, maybe that's enough. I know you've read what people like to say about Austin Rivers speaking derisively about his game and, and the opportunities that have been afforded to him. But um, I know you're also aware of how much better he's gotten and how good he is, not only shooting the three now, which I never thought I'd say, but just at getting to the basket and finishing. Yeah, absolutely. Like, granted, I've made a ton of jokes about Austin Rivers over the years. Like, I, I, like I'm, I'm all in on, on <laughs> making fun of bad Austin Rivers, but he's kind of good now. Like, at least for what his role is, he's a you can do a lot worse than him as a third guard in a rotation. And a lot of that is just the fact that he's he's fearless. Like you would like him to be a better free throw shooter because I still think he's like below 70 percent as a free throw shooter. But you're right. Like he is a solid three point shooter. He's above league average this year. He's good at attacking the rim. You know, he's not as good as Andrew Wiggins, but like Rivers, Andrew Wiggins, like these are guys who, for whatever reason, are not afraid of Rudy Gobert. And maybe that ends up being stupid a lot, but also the, uh, a big reason Gobert is so effective is because guys are weary of him around the rim. These guys aren't. Rivers and Wiggins aren't. And so for Rivers to be, you know, kind of unaffected and let him, you know, and still attack in the normal way against the best rim protector in the league, there is some kind of mental effect that goes in there that that benefits the Clippers. So that I, they really do need that dribble penetration that he can provide. An interesting litmus test sort of to look at over the course of the season in their nine head-to-head games together between the four games during the regular season and five so far in the postseason is the rebounding battle. It seems like the direction that swings has often decided the game. Utah went 3-0 and when it won the rebounding battle, and the Clippers have gone 5-1 and when it either wins or ties. And without Blake Griffin now for the Clippers, that seems like it swung back towards Utah's direction in that they won uh, games four and five and won the rebounding battle there. And a big part of that is because of the career year for Rudy Gobert. First, have you seen the knee injury affecting his impact and how he plays since returning to the series? And also just discuss his career year, maybe his defensive player of the year chances and even all NBA, all NBA first team even chances. Yeah, I think he should be the, the all NBA first team big man or first team center. Like I, I really do like he's Marcus Saul has been really good. Like, I don't know if you consider Anthony Davis a center or a forward, but I, th- I think Rudy's been better than him because I think Anthony Davis is, is highly overvalued as a defender. Whereas Gobert has been arguably the best defensive player in the league. The way he's able to play allows the jazz to play um, a certain style of defense that, you know, just kind of eliminates modern basketball because they run so many shots off the three point line. 
Uh, like I get the versatility of Draymond Green. If Draymond Green wins the award, I have zero problems with that. I think they're both equally deserving. But Gobert isn't just a guy who protects the rim. He's actually really good on the perimeter, too. He's really good at hedging against pick and rolls and, you know, and then scrambling back to the paint and protecting the paint. He's one of the few guys that can guard both a point guard and the big man within a pick and roll at the same time. And he, he doesn't really get forced into a decision because he can contain so well. To me, him on all defensive first team is a no-brainer. Him on all NBA first team is a no-brainer. And then the tricky thing is just like, do you value his presence or do you value Draymond Green's presence defensively on the floor more? I think Draymond will win the award. Uh, I think it should be a lot closer than the voting will probably end up being. I think a lot of that is just not a lot of people pay attention to the Jazz. It's not a premier team. They're not on national TV a lot. And so I think that will affect the voting more than anything. In terms of his ability in the series when he's come back, you can still see like there are moments where he's not containing the pick and roll as well as he has in the past. And there are moments where he's not, you know, maybe rolling as hard, pivoting out of a screen or, you know, kind of cutting along the baseline from action on on the other side of the court to get dunks and stuff like that. But for the most part, we saw it a lot in game five, like he is attacking the rim pretty fearlessly. I mean, he's had big dunks and that's kind of his thing, like. You know, he has the ability to make layups and the ability to make this little floater and stuff. He's not a jump shooter by any means, but he wants to dunk as hard as possible, kind of almost in a shack type way, because I think he believes that it demoralizes the defense to give up not just dunks, but like impressive dunks. Um, so that's been kind of a point of emphasis for him offensively. And he does. I mean, he was a lot more comfortable in game five than he was in game four doing that stuff. And And if he's comfortable on the court. It's just it just it provides a lot of problems for the opposition. The one thing about the Clippers, though, is they were very successful against him in the regular season. And granted, that's the regular season. It's a different game now. But, you know, they've talked about how they don't really change the way they play just because he's in the game. They're going to run the same stuff. They're going to attack the same way. And I believe that uh, it's up to Gobert to win that battle. But for the most part in the regular season, DeAndre Jordan outplayed him in those head to head battles. And that's something that I think sticks with Gobert, makes him want to kind of close out the series and prove that, you know, he should have been the all-star over DeAndre. He should be the all-defensive first team over DeAndre. You know, I think there is a, a huge individual proving ground for him, especially with the national spotlight on him. Yeah, I definitely agree that he should be on the all-defense first team. I think the only person who would challenge him for all-NBA first team center is Marcus All, and I think that's a matter of preference basically whose yeah. game you prefer another player who's had a huge impact for the jazz this season when he's been healthy which has been a big if is george hill he missed 33 games with just a myriad of injuries to his groin toe ankle he missed some games with a concussion and he started the season he had a thumb issue when he's completely healthy which it seems like he almost is right now how good and how instrumental is he for the jazz it's fun. I had a before the regular season or maybe early in the regular season, I talked to a, a Western Conference executive and he said to me, he said, when uh, when the Jazz acquired George Hill, his immediate thought was, how is anybody going to score on this team? Because that like they were a great defensive team, despite the injuries last year with like Howell Neto, Trey Burke, Shelvin Mack is their trio of point guards. So now you've added George Hill, who has like what, like a six nine, six ten wingspan, who's excellent playing the pick and roll, who's excellent helping down into the paint, who re- rebounds solidly as a point guard. He's a great three point shooter. I think he's like thirty eight, thirty nine percent for his career from three point range. I think he shot forty percent this year. Uh, he had his 
highest scoring average ever this season. He just fits into everything the Jazz do offensively really well because he can run a pick and roll. He's a willing passer and he's a really good spot up shooter. So it was almost just, I mean, the fact that they gave up the number 12 pick, like Torian Prince may end up being a really good player in this league or a really good role player. I don't think he's going to be as good as George Hill is right now. So the move for them was just, was a no brainer. And if he gets any kind of continuity, if they resign him, they resign Gordon Hayward and they're able to, you know, really push forward with this core, it could end up being the best non-Warriors lineup in the NBA. This postseason berth was Utah's first in five years. And as you said, we saw like the inklings of Utah being a potentially great team at the end of two years ago when they transformed their defense to an elite level. But this progression has really come over the course of the last four years. Four years ago, they won 25 games with a lot of the same core. Gobert, Hayward, and Favors were all on that same team. And then they've progressed to a win total in the 30s and then to the 40s and then this year into the 50s. What do you think drives that development? And also, they've been able to consistently find quality players that other teams seem to have overlooked, such as Ingles or Gobert even. How do they uh, consistently do that? They're really good with player development. Like Quinn Snyder was a great player development guy as an assistant coach. Um, Their coaching staff, like they've got guys like Johnny Bryant, Antonio Lang, um, Zach Guthrie, Lamar Skeeter, like these are all guys who work with, you know, the players tirelessly and they're not the only team to have, you know, have smart guys working with players, but these guys really know what they're doing and, and they really know how to develop skill work and they know how to, you know, teach the right angles on screens and everything. Um, so the player development is huge. Dennis Lindsay has been brilliant drafting. You know, he built a very good young core that would have made the playoffs last season if it wasn't for all those injuries. You know, I think they missed 18 games of, I think, no go bear, no favors at the same time. So, you know, to they were plugging holes with guys like Jeff Withy and Trevor Booker and we're still, you know, within a game of of making the playoffs last year. So they've drafted extremely well. And then they went out and they knew like, hey, we've got this good young core. They struggled in clutch moments last season. Let's bring in some veterans. They convinced Joe Johnson to you know sign a two year deal. They traded for Boris Diaw when the, the Spurs needed cap room and they traded for George Hill. Like they just seem to make the right moves every single time. And they, you know, they got Dante Exum back from an ACL injury. And while he started out the year extremely slowly, like he was playing pretty good basketball towards the end of the season in a first year back from an ACL injury, which is what you can ask for. Like they just seem to they identify an issue they find a way to develop into being better at it, and then they find the the acquisition that that kind of eliminates that issue. Really, their only problem now outside of health is just turning the ball over. Like they're a team that still turns the ball over way too high, but other than that, all of their other metrics really just measure out as a as a good team, and that's what makes the summer so probably stressful for the for Jazz fans. Is that you know if you lose Gordon Hayward, then you probably lose George Hill, and if that happens, then you're you know you're knocked back a couple of a couple of steps in this rebuilding process. But if you keep everybody together, like I don't know this that it's a championship team, but it it becomes a team that you start wondering, like in two years, will they be able to contend for a title? Yeah, I mean, they won over 50 this season and they'd had such bad luck with injuries, which we've talked about all over the show. The ideal starting lineup, I think, for the, the Jazz this season, Hill, Hood, Hayward, Favors, Gobert, they only played 14 games together. Utah was 12 and 2 in those games. Just looking at the games that George Hill himself played, 
the Jazz were 33 and 16 in the regular season when he played. So it really shows that even with the core lineup right now, they already have what looks to be a very solid championship quality if they're together for a little bit longer team. How do you think they were able to weather the storm of those injuries and keep together to make the playoffs and make the five seed this season? I think a big part of that is just the fact that Joe Ingles became so good, right? Like he shot he shot 44% from three. I think he was like second or third in the league in three-point percentage this year. Um, he's a good playmaker for them. He can... It's funny watching them up close because there were so many moments in like key points of games where LeBron or Chris Paul or like some some star would have Joe Ingles put on him defensively, like in those key moments. And you see their you see their eyes light up because you look at Joe Ingles, he looks like a mechanic. Like he doesn't look he doesn't look like a basketball player aside from his height, right? But he, you know, they would throw him on there and the eyes light up of these stars and then they try to attack him and it's like Oh, this is more difficult. Like this guy has long arms. This guy has this guy's quicker than he looks. He knows everyone's moves. Like he studies the game to the point where he knows where you want to go on the floor and he tries to beat you to that spot instead of just reacting to what you're doing. So having a guy who can be such a two-way weapon like that was huge. Having the veteran presence that they added like Joe Johnson was huge. And then they just had more depth instead of having you know seven guys who could really play a year ago. They had eleven guys who could really play this year. And so it just, you know, guys would go down. You, you're you not relying on Trevor Booker to play 35 minutes. You're not relying on Jeff Withy to play significant stretches of the schedule. Like, it's just none of that was happening. They were able to keep good quality players that fit within the system no matter what on the floor at all times. And they and that's how you weather the storm. This mechanic-looking guy, Joe Ingles, was actually waived by the Clippers after the 2014-15 preseason and then picked up by the Jazz a few days later. Now, three years later, he's quietly wreaking havoc against the team that that had a chance of getting him. He's a great passer, averaging five assists through the first five games of the series, can make threes. He's efficient. He is. I mean, he had yeah. he had the season high in assists in a game in game four for them. I think like before that, no one had had more than eight assists in a game this season for the Jazz, and he had eleven. Like he's just he can kind of do it all. Also, the pack of DJ thing. I think a lot of people were wondering about. We haven't really seen it that much. It's kind of an interesting thing because, from my perspective, it seems like Utah has proven to be the better team slightly. I know it's crazy how close the series has been, but. I don't believe that Utah has had any need to use Hackadj. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because it does go against their idea of like we can play defense without fouling, right? Like years ago, I was with a reporter who asked Andre Kirilenko, like, "How are you such a good defender without fouling?" And his answer was, "I just don't foul them." Like that, it was such a simple answer, and and it's kind of it makes sense yeah. that he was part of the Jazz culture, and now he's part of you know now the Jazz culture is like we're we can play defense without having to overextend ourselves and and run into guys going for steals or going for blocks or whatever like we can just play solid defense without making too much contact and use our length and so i think because of that they feel like one they know they're a good defensive team no matter what two they don't have to give up these fouls to to make deandre jordan slow the game down because the game's already slow they've already dictated the pace of the game yeah, and, and they and as long as like Chris Paul doesn't go nuts, like they feel very confident that they are going to have the advantage in these half court sets throughout the game. So they don't, you know. Granted, DeAndre is not going to often go two for two or even you know one for two, 
so there is a potential of of leaving points on the board for the Clippers by going to it. But the Jazz, you know, Quinn Snyder, I just don't think feels a need to because he knows that they don't have to slow the game down more. They don't have to worry about a team killing them for stretches offensively. Like, they can just be them. Yeah, the Jazz love to play so slow, slowest pace in the NBA. And the thing about that is right now, especially without Griffin pushing the pace, like you said, they don't really need to slow down the pace with hacking DeAndre Jordan. And so it doesn't really seem like it would be that effective of a strategy. We haven't really seen the Clippers go off for long stretches of time. I think, and I'm curious your opinion on this, when Gobert was still out, it made a little bit more sense because the Jazz didn't have that interior defense that they have now. Granted, they were still a really strong defensive unit, but I thought that made more sense. And now that Gobert is there manning the middle, seems like it's, rendered almost meaningless of a strategy at this point yeah a hundred percent and i think too i think they are a little weary of chris paul being a a wily savvy veteran in those moments when they're trying to trying to foul deandre if they go to the hack a strategy like i do think they're like quinn snyder could not have a higher opinion of chris paul like he really does just seem to blush at how good he is at his job and so i think that he knows that Chris Paul will try to find ways to take advantage of those moments, um, either with a quick attack or throwing up a shot as they fouled DeAndre Jordan. You know, all those little tricks of the trade. Like, I think that I think he doesn't want to give Chris Paul more moments to take advantage of. So I think that's another reason. But, yeah, when Gobert was out, too, I think the concern was we already have to play Derek Favors a bunch of minutes. What if he picks up two of these cheap fouls and then we're asking him to foul? Like, we may lose him and then you got to play Jeff Withy or right. second round pick Joel Pollen Boy. Like, you, you know, you don't know where that goes if you start wasting those fouls. Speaking of Chris Paul, were you very uncomfortable with that post game press conference moment? Or are you the type of guy who thrives under that feeling of awkwardness? I thought it was hilarious. I was also directly in front of the guy who asked the question. He was standing. He was standing behind me, and I was seated in the back row of that room. So, I, immediately when he when he asked the question, I was I was trying to be respectful. Like I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but I yeah. I was trying to be respectful. But at the same time, like I started laughing, like because I, I just knew I knew where it was. I knew where this entire exchange was going. Like Chris Paul was not going to have it. He was too smart to like go like yes, of course we're going to win. You know, I guarantee it. And all this stuff. Like he, I knew the reaction <laughs> he was going to have, and so I started laughing as it comes out of the as the first part of the question comes out of his mouth, not out loud, but like kind of to myself. And Chris looked directly at me as, as like, as that happened, because I was just in his line of sight. And then, you know, it comes out and he's like, you know, can you expand on that? And the whole, and as he, as it's gone to like a third exchange, I was like, kind of had my head down and like my hand over my, you know, I'm like pinching my nose, like trying not to, to burst out laughter. Cause I just thought it was a hilarious moment and then, like, you know, I think Rachel Nichols was in there. She might have chuckled. I think uh, a couple other people throughout the, the room were, like, kind of just shaking their heads at the exchange. And then, he, uh, you know, Chris at one point says, this is why people are laughing at this. Like, you were, you were one of the people he was citing there. Right, exactly. I was one of the, I was one of the sources he cited there. <laughs> one last question for you, Zach. Uh, looking ahead at the potential matchup of the Jazz with the Warriors, how much of a chance do you think the Jazz will stand and what has to happen for them to have any semblance of a chance of winning? Oh, I mean, you know, I would like to to pretend that the, the Jazz can be a real thorn in the side of the Warriors. But I just think, you know, at this point, the Warriors, they still have to work Kevin Durant back in. 
I think more so defensively than anything and get him back up to speed on that end of the floor. But they just like, they look so good no matter who's on the floor that it's hard for me to think like the jazz will figure this out without, without the time to build continuity due to injuries. Right. Which I think is the key, but for them, you know, if they are going to do it one, they can shoot the three really well. And so like, they don't do it at the volume of the warriors, but if they can shoot the three well, and if they dictate the pace of the game and don't let the warriors push the tempo, then you've, you've thrown them out of whack, right? Like you've thrown them out of their game and, and maybe then you steal a game or two in that way, just by keeping it a slow paced game maximizing the mistakes the the warriors make and not allowing them to you know just pile possession on possession and fast break on fast break you can contain chris paul a little bit better with rudy gobert and george hill chasing him around um there will be some matchup issues with if you throw draymond or andre Iguodala on gordon hayward the jazz are very comfortable having joe johnson or joe ingles you know be the next point of attack to to try to take advantage of those situations like they do have weapons they can use but you know i think if this goes five that's a huge win for the Jazz. If this goes six, that's elation, right? Like that, if you can get two games out of this Warriors team, I know there are no moral victories in the playoffs, but that's pretty close. I know I said it was going to be the last question, but I forgot we wanted to ask you about your show. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So Ian Carmel, hilarious comedian, uh, writer for The Late Late Show with James Corden, huge Portland Trailblazers fan, so he's sad right now. But he he pitched a sports comedy show to uh, Comedy Central last year. They made a pilot. Ian was dumb enough to ask me to write on the pilot. So I was part of uh, a staff of of seven writers, basically creating, uh, I like to kind of describe it as like, it's like if John Oliver and Chelsea Handler had a baby as a show. Like they, it's kind of their shows combined. It's, a you know, panel discussions. We shot a sketch for it that was essentially retelling the night Charles Barkley got pulled over for a DUI and mentioned he was trying to get, uh, let's just say, some action from a from a lady that he knew, uh, he admitted that to the officer. So we shot a sketch about that that was that I thought was really funny. Um, you know, yeah, we had I saw I like that stuff. Too. Yeah, we had Amin El Hassan on as like our expert, and then we had two comedians, Morgan Murphy, who's uh, she's a hilarious comedian, and David Bory, who's awesome, who is also a writer on the staff. So they were on the panels and. You know, the the theme of our show was humility in sports and how we don't like humility in sports. And we want people to be, you know, braggadocious and, and show out and celebrate and all this stuff. Uh, and it was just a really fun experience. And uh, hopefully we find out that uh, Comedy Central wants to, you know, make a season out of it. Yeah, that show is called The Upside with Ian Carmel. Hopefully we'll get to see more of that on our screens. Thank you so much, Zach, for taking the time to talk with us. It was a really great discussion. Absolutely, guys. It was fun. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Zach Harper on the Clippers Jazz playoff series. I know we did. I just want to continue that discussion about that series with my co-host. Utah now is up 3-2 in the series. I know in the interview we said that the outlook wasn't bright for the Clippers. What chances do you think you would give them? And what do they need to do to overcome that hurdle, Joshua? I'd say the Clippers don't stand that great of a chance because at full strength, these teams seemed fairly even with, I would say, the Clippers having a slight edge. But now without Blake Griffin, 
the Clippers have to win two games. So maybe if we're putting a number on it, like 25%, I'm not that optimistic about the Clippers, but I think both games are going to be close if there are two more games. I think the Clippers are going to fight hard and probably fall short. This idea that the Clippers have a higher ceiling without Blake Griffin, I don't buy. Maybe there could be a case to be made for that in the long run. But this iteration of the team, they definitely are lacking the offensive firepower that they need. A lot of the things we discussed in the interview that Blake brings that no one else does, like being able to go end-to-end after grabbing the rebound, it takes a lot of the pressure and burden off of Chris Paul's shoulders. And also, he's just such a great passer, interior passer. He can make quick decisions out of the double team. That would would have opened things up potentially for shooters like J.J. Redick. So I think without him, the Clippers don't really have that much of a chance. I would give them somewhere under 20%, probably even a lot less. I don't think that they'll get blown out. Some people believe that they're just mentally deflated after falling in Game 5 at home, and they're just going to lay an egg. I don't think that's the case, but I think it's more likely a case where it's a relatively close game. These teams are tied with 495 total points through the first five games of the series. So ultra competitive, obviously, but I just think in the end, Utah has too much depth to outlast the Clippers. Yeah, I tend to agree with both of you. I don't give the Clippers that high of a chance. Losing Blake Griffin, as you said, he just brings so much to the team. As currently constructed for the Clippers, he's maybe their secondary playmaker as well. Their offense becomes a lot more stagnant without him in the lineup. So they'll have a tough time to try to pull this out. But for this young Jazz team, this is a team that we've watched all season. We saw their potential last season and even the season before that they could have greatness in their future. What do you think a postseason round win would mean for this team, for most of the players forming the core of the team, having never even been to the postseason before, Aaron? It's huge. And I don't think it would have been that big of a letdown had Utah lost. Granted, they were injured all year and they were capable of getting more than 51 wins if they had better health during the season. But just the nature of a 4-5 matchup, especially one where you don't have the home court advantage to begin the series. I don't think if Utah ended up losing the series, I know they still might, that it would have been that big of a disappointment. But Definitely will be a lot better for how they're feeling around the franchise and the fan base if they're able to just get a shot at the Warriors. Could be a precursor to what we're seeing maybe in the future, provided that Gordon Hayward comes back. Because this is the first time they've made the playoffs in five years. They were a young team that was getting better every single season. They added those three veterans in Diao, Hill, and Johnson, and they finally made the leap to the playoffs. So that's huge in and of itself. If they take that next step and get into the Western semis, even better. I actually don't think it would be that big of a deal if they didn't advance because the Jazz are way ahead of schedule. No one expected them to get this far. Sometimes losing, you learn more than winning. And these guys might come back even more motivated after having worked extremely hard after a a bitter disappointment. So I think the experience losing to the Clippers if they don't advance might be just as valuable as getting blown out by the Warriors, which I expect them to do if they advance. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a learning season all year for the Jazz. We had high expectations heading into the season. I know on our preseason preview of the 2016-17 season with James Herbert, he picked the Jazz as his team to watch that could really make a splash in the Western Conference. They weathered injuries all year to all of their key guys. George Hill missing 33 games. Derek Favors never looked completely healthy over the course of the season. Gordon Hayward missed a lot of games too. So it's a triumph that they were even able to be so good. And as Zach pointed out in the interview, it's because of so many of their role players stepping up big, like Joe Ingles becoming a knockdown three-point shooter, one of the best in the NBA and a capable defender. But switching gears again, back to the Clippers. If the Clippers do end up losing this series, which looks like it may be the case, I know it's not definite yet. A lot of people are making the call now with so many key free agent decisions ahead of them this summer. People are saying that maybe this Clippers core has run its course and maybe they should blow it up and go in a different direction. What do you think about that? As a Clippers fan, and also just as a fan of good basketball, I would like to see a healthy trio of Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and DeAndre Jordan have another shot at this thing. But I know people are impatient. Front offices get impatient. If they had to get rid of one of the players, sadly, I think it would have to be Griffin. But that's not what I want to see. Chris Paul needs to be around no matter what. He's the most important player on the team. DeAndre Jordan and Blake Griffin are important too. They both do so many unique things. And the team chemistry is something that's also often often overlooked. Blake Griffin and DeAndre Jordan are best friends. They get along so well, both on and off the court, passing to each other, joking around before and after games. Through the grind of a season, traveling through cities and being exhausted, the chemistry is important. And that's something that will take a long time to replace and might not even be replaceable. I couldn't have said it any better. The consistency, and I'll stress this, the regular season consistency of this core unit has been really rare around the NBA. They have the fourth longest active postseason birth streak right now at six straight postseason appearances. You know they're going to be good each and every year, but do they have enough to get that title? Does really any Western Conference team have enough in this era of the dominant Golden State Warriors? Probably not. But then again, just being realistic, this Clippers unit has not even close to lived up to expectations and players have to be held accountable. As Joshua said, front offices get impatient. I completely agree with him. Just basically everything he said, I really do want to see Jordan Griffin and Paul collectively get another shot at a title here. But given all of these failures, whether it's because of injury or just postseason choking, I guess would be the word. They just haven't gotten it done. And you can't really blame the Clippers for blowing it up. DeAndre Jordan is locked up. He's a great player. He's a rare player. He'd be hard to trade, but they wouldn't want to trade him anyway. I see him in town, and I really think Paul is the most important player and has to stay. He's going to get a huge $200-plus dollars contract, likely paying him until the age of 37. So yeah, they'll be overpaying for him, but you have to overpay for a talent like that because 29 other teams in the NBA would also do the same and they'd be better for it. 
So it would be sad to see Blake Griffin go. I think he's the odd man out if they decide to go that route. That said, I wouldn't be surprised if they kept this core together and the national media pundits said that they were crazy for doing it because Doc Rivers and those guys have so much confidence that they're going to get the job done regardless, I think, of all these repeated failures. But also, I wouldn't be surprised if Blake Griffin went elsewhere or something like that, too. So really, a lot of different things could happen. Yeah, I think the issue is, as you said, perennially coming into the season, the Clippers are viewed as one of the most dangerous teams, and then they end up disappointing in the postseason. But a lot of that has been out of their control. They've had really bad luck with injuries this season. You saw Blake Griffin go down with injury in Game 3 last season. It seemed like they had a really good avenue to making at least the Western Conference Finals when Steph Curry went down with an injury against the Rockets, but then they themselves had Chris Paul and Blake Griffin go down. So they're underperformance. I don't call it really choking necessarily. It's more just being unlucky. And like if you have the core to put you in that position where like a few bounces just need to go better your way. I think you should keep it together. Another reason I'm not a huge proponent of blowing it up for the Clippers specifically is that I really don't have any confidence in the front office to be able to either develop the players or draft players for for the (laughs) Clippers. Like, I mean, granted, they've had low draft picks by way of their regular season performance for the last few years, but I don't think I can really name a Clippers first round draft pick in the last four years that's had any sort of impact. Am I wrong? I don't think so. I think Bledsoe and DeAndre Jordan, farther back, were good second round picks. Really good second round picks. But And they obviously traded for Bledsoe technically. But one thing I just wanted to respond to that you said, Lauren, the choking that I was referring to was particularly two straight postseasons. One where they had that big late lead against the Thunder in the second round in Oklahoma City, and uh, they had turnovers and fouls. And then, as you know, the series we were in attendance for for a game, the 3-1 series lead to the Rockets. But no, you're right, though, also to point to even dynasties throughout the NBA's history. A lot of things have to go right. You do have to have a little bit of luck. And conversely, the Clippers have had a ton of bad luck. So a lot of it we can fairly place blame on their shoulders but yeah a lot of it has been out of their control too as we said it'll be something to look to which direction that the clippers decide to go this off season it does seem like a little bit of a changing of the guard in this series between the clippers and the jazz handing it from the clippers to the jazz as the new up-and-coming team who hopefully will build this sort of dynasty for years to come at least of perennial postseason burst but i think that's where we'll leave it off i think in the last few weeks we've talked about the clippers enough probably so as a reminder you can catch us every friday on dash radio or you can subscribe to our show in podcast form on itunes stitcher google play or wherever podcasts are found thanks again for tuning in see you next week